Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Let's begin by entering into prayer together this time. Heavenly Father, we just want to come here today and praise You. We want to worship You and Your Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We worship You through the hearing and the preaching of the Word and through fellowshipping with one another, through giving, through singing. May it all be to Your glory. May the Holy Spirit guide and direct everything that will be going on here today, Father. And we also pray this morning, Father, for the needs of the saints, both here in the congregation, around the country, and around the world. We pray in particular for those Christians who are being persecuted or are involved in wars. We pray that uh, you would watch over them and guide them and have the angels watch over them and protect them. And we, uh, ask, we ask too, Father, that you would uh, inspire the members of the body of Christ to have care for one another, be tenderhearted, and forgive each other. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. You may wonder why I wait after I stand up here, and it's actually just to let the singers have a chance to sit down and relax for, for a few seconds before I begin. That's, that's what I do that for. Okay, church luncheon is coming up next Sunday, week from today after service, October 20th. If you plan to bring food, just let Jack Bovenay know that, what you're bringing ahead of time so we can prepare what we need to. Also this month, our missionary organization is Grace Prison Ministries, Grace Prison Ministries, www.gracepisons.org. This is a prison ministry that goes into the prisons and the jails to change the lives of prisoners through preaching the gospel and teaching them the word of God. They present the simple grace gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're all sinners, we were born sinners, that Jesus Christ came and took on human flesh, the Son of God died for us on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead so that ever simply believes in Him will never perish but have eternal life. The grace gospel of Jesus Christ. By grace we're saved through faith. They also teach practical procedures for living the Christian life to show, as our sign says, that Jesus is the answer to whatever problems that they faced, whatever problems have brought them into prison in the first place. So please keep this missionary organization in your prayers. They do great work particularly in the southeast of the United States. They come, Keithian Starling, who leads it up, comes here often, at least once a year. He's also putting together a weekend conference in one of the local prisons, so please keep that in prayer. It's always very fruitful. I've been on a few of those with him, and the prisoners are very, very receptive to the gospel and the word of God. They know, they understand what it means that all of us are born sinners. And they're searching for the answer to that. So please keep that in prayer as well. www.graceprisons.org Also, as I've been announcing, next, this Wednesday coming up, October 16th, will be our first session at public school, Deerfield Beach Middle School. There's a law in the state of Florida that allows Christian clubs to meet after service. I mean, after service. After, after the class day is done, the school day. And uh, so we're participating in that for the first time. It's called First Priority, and we will be in there this Wednesday. Um, I'm going to embarrass uh, Dakota and Caitlin. Hi. Yeah, they're going to be, uh, they're going to come and they're going to be with me. Actually, they're going to be 
kids are going to be wanting to know about, hear from them because they're, you know, look at this old guy, you know. So thank you guys so much for stepping up to that. I'm really excited about that this Wednesday. Please keep that in prayer also. And a lot of people have asked about this uh, once again this year. Grace Bible Church Pakistan is going to have their Christmas care package, move, um, whatever that's called. And so it's going to be, uh, typically, as you know, they've uh, had students in their Grace Academy that they bring Christmas gifts to. They also go out into the villages and they bring village packages there. And so uh, this year they've set a goal to raise $12,000. Now, don't get nervous. It's not a goal for Lighthouse Bible Church. It's just a goal overall. They have several churches that support their missionary organization. We always do. You guys are always very generous. Um, just as a reminder, um, the Grace Academy School packages are, eight, are $15 each, and the Village packages are $7 each. And you can see how many they've set as a goal. 200 for the school's children. 1,200 for the villages. And so I just want you to begin to think about that, keep in prayer. I want to let you know, too, that the deadline for donations is December 1st. What we do every year is kind of package up the gifts that we receive from you, and the church makes a contribution, and then we send it all there. It doesn't have to be. If you want to send it on your own, that's perfectly fine. But we kind of like to have a group donation. You know, it looks bigger and Exciting to have everybody be a part of it. So if you're, if you're going to do that, you know, just if you're going to give cash, just make sure on the envelope you say, you know, Pakistan Christmas. Or if you're going to write a check, same thing in the memo, just so we know that you intended to go to this. All right. Anybody need the Bible? Just raise your hand. We'll make sure you have one. We're now entering into the, pre- the preaching of the Word of God, which is the centerpiece of how we worship. That is the main function of the church is to preach the Word of God. And that's going to happen right now. I'd like to invite everybody to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. We are, of course, studying the book of 1 Corinthians. This is about our sixth month or so in this book, which is actually pretty short given the fact that there's 16 chapters. You know, we've been moving through this a chunk at a time, and uh, we are already to the end of chapter 11. It's a 16-chapter book. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Title of today's message comes from this passage, and it's, If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. This morning, we're going to try to understand more about this verse and about the whole thing by looking at... a few Greek words, so that we understand, like for example here, and we'll get into this a little bit, the, the, we judged is a different Greek word than be judged, for example. Now see, in the English translation, it sort of all looks the same, so that's why sometimes it's critical to go back and look at the Greek and say, well, give me more understanding of what the word really means, and we're going to do that this morning. All right, let's begin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 34, therefore... Now, that's, he's leading out of, he's, now, he's presented the instructions directly from the Lord about celebrating the Lord's Supper and the meaning of it, proclaiming the Lord's death. And now he's moving on. He's saying, now, since you have now seen that and heard that again, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And that's one verse. We're going to take a look at two Greek words. One for what that word unworthy manner is all about, and also guilty. Again, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're going to look at one Greek word in verse 28, and it's the Greek word for examine. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In verse 29, we're going to look at the Greek word for judge. Does not judge the body rightly. We're also going to talk about what what body is being talked about here. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Sleep in in the New Testament often refers to death. A number of you have died. Verse 30, for this reason, I'm sorry, we already said that one. I'll read it again. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. We're going to look at that word disciplined as well. Verse 33, what's the the uptick? What's the final conclusion? What has it been leading towards in this whole section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, all the way back from um, verse uh, 22 all the way to the end, actually before that, 17 all the way to the end. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. One more time, I want everybody to understand that 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34 are one unit. This is the third unit of that, as it were. I mean, third stage of that. One unit, one subject. It's in three stages. We've seen this already. But what's the one theme of this? What's the one subject? It's this. Paul, no, that's not it. That is it. It's the thoughtless and selfish behavior of the Corinthians. Again, thoughtless, selfish behavior of the Corinthians. Okay, that's bad enough. But when? When they gathered together to eat the Lord's Supper. We've seen that's the ultimate contradiction. Why? Well, because the Lord's Supper brings into remembrance Christ's death for us. He thought of us. He was selfless, and yet they were thoughtless and selfish. Can you see how that's a total contradiction to why they gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper? We gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper to realize that his body bore our sins on the cross and that his blood is the new covenant, and that all of this was for us, and all of this was the Lord thinking not of himself, but us. So they gathered together, but they didn't really gather to eat the Lord's Supper at all. So in verses 17 to 22, we were there two weeks ago, Paul calls them out for this behavior. He rebukes them for these abuses that they've been involved in at the Lord's Supper. Now, why does he do that? Because he wants them to put away bad behavior. As, as Ephesians 4.22 says, put away the old man. That's what this is all about. They were engaged in old man behavior, fleshly behavior. What it means to be in Adam, not to be in Christ. Put it away. Don't do it anymore. 
Verses 23 to 26, Paul delivers the Lord's instructions about the Lord's Supper. They were to take that in and to change their mind, to be transformed by the renewing of their mind about the Lord's Supper. So there's putting away the old behavior of the old man, as having your mind renewed by the truth, hear the truth of what the meaning of the Lord's Supper is. And then finally, where we are today, verses 27 to 34, Paul warns them about judgment, and he exhorts them to correct the abuses. In other words, he's saying, now you've seen that your behavior is wrong. Now you've seen the remedy in, in changing your thinking according to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, remembering the Lord and proclaiming his death. And now it's time for you to pick things up and go forward. Now there's two ways you can go, he says to them. You can either ignore the Lord's Supper's meaning and continue in the abuses that you've behaved in, but I'm going to warn you, Paul says, about the judgment that awaits. Or you can go in the new direction, putting on the new man, and correct those things and live the opposite of it. Rather than gathering together for selfish reasons, gather together for one another. But thinking about the other person, welcoming everybody. Put on the behavior of the new man in light of the cross. Now Paul is telling the Corinthians to judge, evaluate, discern their behavior according to a standard. See, when you try to evaluate your behavior or your thinking, you know, it's not your opinion about your behavior. It's not what somebody else tells you about your behavior. It's about an objective standard from God's Word. You know, you look at the objective standard and you say, how am I measuring up to that? Right? In other words, if you said, um, boy, I want to get better at doing push-ups. Well, what's the goal? You know, you might say, I did three. Isn't that great? Well, I suppose for some people it would be. You know, if you're, if you're 110 years old and you do three, hallelujah. You know, but if you're 30 and you're doing three, well, you're not really meeting a standard. We have to look at, well, what's a typical 30-year-old able to do? You see? That's the standard. Maybe it's 30. So you look at yourself in, in connection with the standard, and you say, I'm falling short. It is an incredible standard that we are to behave according to when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And it's the Lord's death. The standard of what he was doing, what he was thinking when he died for us. That's why he includes warnings. Because not to do that is a very serious matter. It's a very serious matter. If you gather together with the, with the people, with the body of Christ, and you're celebrating and bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord, that's what you should be doing. You should be thinking about his death and what it means. And evaluating your behavior when you gather together according to that standard. What's the standard? Well, what was Christ thinking? Why did he die for us? Okay? And then when you see that, then you say, wow, now this is all about the unity of the body because he died for all of us. This is all about us not thinking of our selfish you know, needs or selfish desires, but instead thinking about the other person and what they might need. It is a challenging but a noble standard, the death of Christ on the cross. That's why, again, he includes warnings. He's saying, you know, if you're doing the opposite, if, if you're at your worst in terms of thinking about others, in terms of thinking about the Lord's death, when you gather together to proclaim the Lord's death, that's a serious matter. It's a serious matter involving your relationship with the Lord. And that's why he has warnings here, as we've seen. 
Alright, let's begin. Verse 27. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, those are the communion elements, but you do it in an unworthy matter, manner, you shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, it talks about unworthy. Some people think that that means the person. It doesn't. Notice, it's not, the issue is not whether they or you or, I, you or I are worthy or unworthy of being there. Here's the deal. No one is. None of us are worthy enough to eat the bread in the cup. I mean, the whole point of, the, of Christ's death is because we were sinners and he died for our sins. We're not worthy. What, what does it mean for you to be worthy or unworthy of being here? It's not about us. So much as, this is what it's really about. Notice what it says. It doesn't say whoever, who is, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord and is unworthy. It says what? Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. It has to do with the manner with which you're eating and drinking. That's what it's talking about. A manner shall be guilty of the body of the Lord, of blood, bloody and blood of the Lord. Again, the issue here is the manner in which they eat and drink at the Lord's Supper. Their behavior as they are gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper. It's focused on their behavior. Now, their behavior can be unworthy. Can it not? It can be totally out of keeping with what they're depicting when they eat the bread and drink the cup. That's what's unworthy, their behavior. By the way, we've already seen that. We've already seen that their unworthy behavior, their bad behavior, what it was. And it's actually back in chapter 11, verse 20. So if you please just go back a few verses to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Unworthy manner, bad behavior. What bad behavior? Let's, let's remember, refresh our memories. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 22. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise, think little of, the church of God and shame those who have nothing, the poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. I want to point something out, because in English, I've, said, I've mentioned this quite often, when we see the word you, Y-O-U, because in the English, whether it's one person or a million people, it's the same three-letter English word, right? You. It's why the Southerners have at, talk about it, y'all. You know, hear this, you know, we used to think, oh, you know, that's kind of colloquial. No, it's actually more accurate. Y'all indicates plural. You is singular, if you do it that way. In, in the King James Version of the Bible, there's ye and thou. You know, singular, plural. Actually, thou is singular and ye is plural. In any event, what do we have here when it says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Who's you? Well, it's the entire assembly. The you is plural. It means all of you. It means all of you. Each one of them. All of them were taking their own supper, what they brought. And the community as a whole is disrespecting the church of God and shaming the poor. 
It means all of you. It means the entire assembly. That's important. We're going to see that pattern continue in our passage this morning. Okay, back to verse 27. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, bad behavior, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, when it says eat the bread and drink the cup, remember, it's one loaf of bread. Unity. It's the one cup. The eating and drinking was supposed to be something they all shared in. Together, all of them share. It was to be a time of unity. But their bad behavior in an unworthy manner was the opposite of unity. It was causing division. The rich had more to eat than the poor. The poor, some of them weren't able to bring anything. And that was highlighted by the manner in which they ate and drank. That's the opposite of the unity that's supposed to be in the sharing together of the meal, the Lord's Supper. So what's the uptake on that? Well... Anyone who engages in this behavior that we've just looked at in verses 21 and 22 shall be guilty, it says in verse 27, of the body and the blood of the Lord. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a pretty severe warning, don't you think? I mean, I mean, I wouldn't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, would you? In other words, the body and the blood of the Lord, His sacrificial death for us, it's a very solemn moment, we're thinking about what he's done for us, his death, and yet when I'm there, I'm guilty of the body and the blood. It's a horrible thing. And, and of course, he meant it that way. Well, what does it mean, though, to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? It, it's, just, it's kind of difficult to understand that in the English. Guilty of what? Right? Guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So I have to tell you something about the Greek word for guilty. It means this. It means to commit an offense against someone. So this is saying, shall, be, have, shall have committed an offense against the body and blood of the Lord. To sin against. Is sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And therefore, is answerable to the body and the blood of the Lord. Is, is, is they have held in contempt the body and the blood of the Lord. They've committed that offense against the body and the blood. They've sinned against the body and the blood. That therefore answerable to the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, how did they do that? Again, it was when they mistreated other members of the church. When they did that, when they mistreated other members of the church, they were actually committing an offense against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's what they were actually doing. By the way, this, they didn't just do this once. Okay? This is an ongoing bad behavior. They were consistently behaving this way at the Lord's table. Consistently. Consistently putting down one another. Consistently making an issue of who was rich and who was poor. Continuously shaming the poor. Disregarding who the body of Christ really is. When they sinned against their brothers and sisters, and they did, during the Lord's Supper meal, that's what was visible. That's what Paul had heard about. In fact, though, they were actually sinning against Christ. You see, they didn't see it that way. Why? Because they weren't even thinking about the Lord. They were just thinking that this is another time when we gather together where this people from different ways of life, from different backgrounds, here we are, we're fighting, we got this, we got that going on. 
look, I'm, I've done really well off, and I'm going to showcase my wealth when we get together and kind of, kind of shame you because you don't have as much as I do. And they saw everything on that level, but that's a worldly view of people gathering together. They totally ignored the spiritual side. They ignored the Lord. They ignored the meaning of the bread and the cup. And therefore, they ignored the body and the blood of the Lord and what it has done for them, all of them. All of us stand at the foot of the cross as sinners. They forgot about that. They ignored that in their behavior. They thought they were just doing something that, heck, everybody in Corinth did. Trying to increase your social status at the expense of others. That's how they saw it. But really, they were sinning against Christ. That's a very serious thing. In fact, you know how when Paul, when Saul was persecuting the Christians... And the Lord came down and knocked him off his horse, and he was blinded. What was the first thing the Lord said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he didn't say the church. That's what Paul thought he was doing. He was proud of it. No, the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the same thing here. He could have been saying to the Corinthians, 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 You think you're just shaming other brothers and sisters. But why are you shaming me? That's the whole point of this. Serious offense. By the way, when you see it this way, and that's the way God sees it, doesn't that help to explain the sort of drastic consequences that we'll see in verse 29? Sickness, weakness, and even death. What does that mean? This is a very serious offense. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. By the way, I want you to notice one thing right off the bat. It doesn't say a man must examine himself and not drink, eat the bread and drink the cup. No, the examination is a prelude. We're going to see really what that means in a minute. Moving into eating the bread and drinking the cup. If you don't do that, if you eat and drink without examining yourself, you'll eat and drink judgment against himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What is this saying? Well, it's saying that when the examination has to do with judging the body rightly. That's what the man should examine. Okay? Is he judging the body rightly? A man must examine himself. Now, we're going to see what this examination is all about. But um, here's what it isn't. This is not confessing all your sins so that you're clean again. You know, that's, that's, we'll see what that came from. That's not what it is. It doesn't say, go confess your sins, then you're clean, now you can take Holy Communion. That's not the examination that's in view. By the way, that false teaching, and that's what it is, comes out of the Roman Catholic sacraments. In the Roman Catholic sacraments, old days anyway, you're supposed to confess all your sins and then you're eligible to take the communion elements on Sunday, right? Well, that's not what this verse is talking about. But a man must examine himself. Okay, let's look at what this means by going back to the Greek language. The Greek verb here for examine, when it says a man must examine himself, is the Greek word dokimazo. Okay? That's actually, you know, English, I mean, translator, trans, 
yeah, transliteration. The Greek letters are different, but this is basically it. Dokimazo. That's the Greek word here for examine. So in order to understand what this examination is really all about, we're going to look at what the Greek word is all about. And uh, here's a picture of what the Greek word is all about. Anybody see what's here? Think about trade in the ancient world and how the most valuable thing, the way in which people traded was gold, okay? Well, there's a person paying for something with a gold bar. Only when you strip away the veneer, it's not gold at all. You see that? Well, the issue there, this is why I bring this up. You see, this word, dokimazo, came out of the practice of testing metals to see whether they were genuine or not, particularly gold. I have this gold, but is it really gold? Is it genuine or is it fake? Is it real gold or is it fake? Now, hopefully it's real. It's genuine. Uh, The owner certainly hopes so, right? If you have these gold bars, you're thinking it's real gold, right? But if you strip away and you see that, and oh my, I got ripped off, right? It's not really gold at all. And they had tests in order to determine that. And that's what this word means. It means to test, to put to the proof, to examine, in the hope and expectation that the test will prove successful. Dokimanso means to test, to put to the proof, to prove, to examine in the hope and expectation that the test will prove successful. In other words, you test the goal hoping that it's genuine, hoping that it's the real thing. By the way, once you test, it also means this. Once it's tested, it's marked. This is authentic. This has been approved. This has the good housekeeping seal of approval. Right? It's marked as what it is. Marked as genuine, authentic, approved. That's dokimatsu. To test, to see whether it's real, it's genuine. And then to mark it, if it does pass the test, as genuine, approved, authentic. Okay, so that, that's about what it was meaning in terms of everyday life, in terms of testing metals. Well, Paul takes that idea and he brings it into what he's teaching here. And he does it, he uses this word other places too, you know. Later on, he'll say, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. He'll use it in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 when he says to prove out what the will of God is, right? that's dokimatsu also. Paul uses it in a rather technical sense in his writings, and it means the practical testing of a person's thoughts and actions to reveal one's understanding of what the Bible teaches. Let me say that. I don't have a slide for it. Let me say it, though. Probably should have. Paul uses it in a technical way to mean the practical testing of a person's thoughts and actions to reveal one's understanding of biblical teachings. Okay, you look at a person's thoughts and actions, and you, from that, you gauge, now remember, this is examining yourself, so there's no hiding here. You, know, you look at your own thoughts and actions and ask the question, does that reveal that I understand the Lord's teachings? And here it's a very specific thing, right? It means to examine one's conduct, one's behavior, according to the standard of the cross. Do you really understand the meaning of the cross? How it's revealed in God's word? Okay. 
Well, your conduct will follow that. If you really are humbled by the fact that you're a sinner, saved by the grace of God through the blood of Christ, and that all of us are, and that God died for everybody, God, Jesus Christ, the Lord, died for everybody. And the idea was to be unified. He prayed to the Father, you know, keep them unified. May they all be as one as we are one. You see, that was the teaching. That was the standard. And the question is, are you conducting yourself at the Lord's Supper according to the standard of the cross? In other words, when you come together and you gather to approach the table of the Lord, are you the real deal or are you a phony? Are you just going through the motions? Is what's inside, remember we saw the gold that was stripped away the veneer and it wasn't really gold inside? Well, is your behavior not the real thing? Is it, is it not lining up with why we're here? Are you, are you the, is your behavior genuinely matching up to the standard of the cross? Or actually, are you a phony? You may, in other words, you may, with everybody else, be going up there or whatever you were doing, but here we sit down and you're actually eating the bread like everybody else, you know, and then drinking the cup like everybody else. That's the veneer, anyway, that's what people are seeing. But on the inside, your thoughts are elsewhere. Your, your behavior has been the opposite of what the meaning of the cross is. Examine yourself against the standard of the cross. In other words, get real. Get real. Christ died for all of us. We all share equally in the bread and the cup. Check yourself. And therefore, treat every member of the body as an honored guest. In other words, you examine yourself and maybe it doesn't look too good. Maybe you say, you know what? My attitudes and behavior are the opposite of what the cross is all about. However, I've examined myself. I've tested it. I put it to the proof. I've found out that my behavior shows that I'm not really genuinely participating in the Lord's Supper. I'm faking it. Okay. It's good that you see that. Now change your thinking. From therefore, in other words, in that moment, you can examine yourself and you can see, wow, I've been abusing people. And now I can change in that instant and see that, wait a minute. I get it now. I get it that we're all members of one another. And I'm going to start acting that way. Even that same day, you're going to treat one another as body of Christ. All of us are honored guests. You honor everybody. Kind of like uh, one of my favorite Christmas uh, movies, not a movie, shows, The Grinch. Remember The Grinch? His behavior was awful, was it not? He went down into town, he was already abusing that little dog, made him into a reindeer, and he went down that steep cliff down, the, and he comes on in in the middle of the night, and he's taken everything. He's taken off all the the Christmas tree ornaments, and he's taking the tree, he's taking the, he even took the roast beast. Imagine that. Then he comes trudging back up, and he gets to the top of the mountain, and he hears something. He hears the, the who's a whoville still celebrating and worshiping on the death, on the, on the, that case, the birth of Christ. And in that instant, everything changed. In an instant, in his heart. They say it grew ten sizes that day, Right? And then he, what, he went down again and he brought everything back and he even cut the roast beast. What does that mean? It means you can, you can have your heart changed in an instant by hearing God's word and taking it to heart. And then on the basis of that, your behavior changes. So that's what the examination is for. 
It's for you to see whether your behavior, particularly when we gather together, has been according to the standard and the meaning of the death of Christ. And if it hasn't, then you can, having heard the true meaning, now you can change your attitude. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, it's the Word that's the power. So if you've been doing the opposite, it's simply time to have it corrected. And that means that you should approach the table of the Lord. Approach it, okay, eat and drink, but with the right attitude, with an attitude of humility, finally. You see, they were proud, particularly the rich people, were proud of who they were. And this is saying, you know what, check that pride at the door. Come here with humility, understanding that you were a sinner and Christ died for your sins. And also in your heart, have a willingness to change. Now, you can't change yourself without the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, but you can certainly want it and be willing to change. But make no mistake, those who are behaving selfishly and shaming others are not acting according to the standard set by the Lord's death. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, you can see in this, in this passage, this verse, that that expression at the end, does not judge the body rightly, it's not really, in and of itself, it's not really, what, what, what does this mean, right? What does it mean to judge the body rightly? Things like this that are not obviously clear are great um, grist for the mill of people teaching all kinds of different interpretations. And this is no, no doubt um, one of those places. What, it all boils down to understanding what's the body here? What's Paul and the Holy Spirit inspired Paul when he wrote the body? What is it? What, what body? What is this talking about? And before we can get there, we first need to look at that word judge in this verse. Does not judge the body rightly. The Greek word for judge in the body rightly here in verse 29 is diakrino. Diakrino. What does it mean? It means to separate. To separate one thing from another. Therefore, it means to distinguish. Okay? I'm distinguishing one thing from another. This thing is according to God's will. This is the real deal. That thing is not. So there are two things. And you're making a distinction. You're distinguishing between. You're separating things out for clarity. Like Paul had said earlier, you know, when you, your, your divisions, you think that you're approved and the other ones aren't. Well, actually, it's good that you're seeing the two different groups, but you got them backwards. Remember that? We saw that who the, the people they thought were approved. I feel like I'm the scarecrow all of a sudden. The people that thought they were approved were really not approved, and vice versa. In any event, it meant to distinguish, to separate. That's what this word diacrino means, to distinguish, to separate. In other words, it means to make a distinction between one thing and another. The word we often use for that is discern, right? We look at a teaching and we discern whether it's biblical or false, right? That's discernment. You can discern things as a Christian based on the Word of God. And that's what this word means. It means to distinguish one thing from another. To discern one thing from another. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not discern the body rightly. 
By the way, the King James adds the Lord's here. Now, I don't know which Greek text is right, but it's certainly appropriate in this case. It's talking about the Lord's body. We'll see that in a minute. Does not discern the body rightly. Okay, so remember I mentioned there's several interpretations. The question, of course, we always ask this question when we're trying to discern whether, what, the, what the passage means. The question is, which interpretation? There's several interpretations of the word body here. Well, which one best fits the context here? What Paul's been talking about in chapter 10 and 11, and including the meaning of diacrino, especially. What best fits that meaning to distinguish, to discern, to separate one thing from another? To make a distinction between one thing and another. How does that enter into the meaning of the word body here? Well, first of all, some have taught that the body here is an individual's body. I'm supposed to somehow discern my body. Never mind, in fact, I don't know what that means, right? But besides that, the question is, okay, wait a minute, but diacrino means distinguishing. Does it mean that I'm looking at my body and distinguishing it from another person's body? Of course not. That can't be what this means. I want to point out, too, that it doesn't mention the blood. See, so, some teaching, especially um, people who believe that, that it's called, the fancy word is transubstantiation, but what it means is that they really believe that the priest who's doing this actually has the power to turn bread and the cup, the wine, into the body and blood of the Lord. They teach that that's what this means. That you look at the, at the bread, but it's really the body. You can't see it, but it really is literally the body. Well, okay, but they also say the same thing about the cup. Well, isn't it interesting? The cup isn't mentioned here, right? Or the blood isn't mentioned here. It's just the body. And as I said, King James has it right in the sense that it is talking about the body of the Lord. But okay, what does that mean? Is it the physical body of the Lord? Well, here's the question. If it is referring to the physical body of the Lord, with what is that distinguished? In other words, here you have the physical body of the Lord as compared to what? As distinguished from what? Do you see how there's no what? You can't, there's, nothing, there's nothing to distinguish the, the Lord's body. And it's, so therefore, it's not the physical body of the Lord. By the way, it does not say judging the bread rightly. What does it say? does not say bread, it says body. This is all significant. It's not the bread. It's not something about discerning what the meal is all about, in that sense. It's talking about the body. Well, again, the question is, what body? Well, another interpretation is that it refers to the church as the body of Christ. Okay? So now let's ask the question. You're looking at people... And he's saying you should discern that these people are the body of Christ. Okay. Well, what's the distinction, though? That's that same question. The body of Christ as distinguished from what? The church as distinguished from what? Well, the answer is what they've been doing. As distinguished from, distinct from how they saw the group, which is people divided by social status. They looked at the people, but all they were seeing was people that were divided by social status. The haves and the have-nots, the upper class. That's how they saw the people. Paul is saying that is not discerning this people correctly. You're not discerning them as the church, which is Christ's body. 
And it's that interpretation that best fits the context. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 17. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 17. <laughs> yeah, just flip back a page or two. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. One chapter back, verse 17. Context, Lord's meal, Lord's supper. Since there's one bread, one loaf, we who are many are one body. In other words, the fact that there's one loaf should be teaching people that there's one body, the church, gathered together. For we all partake of the one bread. Can you see how that's about the unity of the body of Christ? And and that it's the loaf, but it's really teaching us that we're all one in Christ. There's one loaf, one body, and we're all sharing in that together. Okay. One other thing. This word, diacrino, that we've seen already in verse 29, well, it appears again in verse 31. Please look at verse 31. Okay, verse 29, we've already seen. Okay, look at verse 31. This is a parallel verse. I'll show you what I mean in a moment. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Now, in verse 29, it's talking about an individual. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not discern the body correctly. Doesn't see that this group is really the church, the body of Christ. But diacrino also appears in verse 31. If we judged ourselves rightly, if we discerned who? What? Verse 31. If we discerned ourselves. You see it? It's a parallel passage. If we judged or discerned the body correctly, if we discerned ourselves correctly. It's the same principle, though. Who are we? Are we just a collection of people that are divided in these different ways? Or are we all together united as the body of Christ? So in other words, you, plural by the way, is equal to the body. Okay. If we discern the body rightly, if we discern ourselves rightly. And verse 31 is in the plural. I'm going to see more about that. Again, the conclusion is the body in verse 29 refers to ourselves. As a group. If we saw ourselves not as a divided assembly, but as the united body of Christ, there's the distinction. Not a divided assembly, united body of Christ, then we would not be judged. We would not, the man wouldn't eat and drink judgment to himself, and we as a community wouldn't be judged. Well, from verses 27 to 29, if you, take, you look at it, it's talking about one individual, right? Third person singular, if you want to look at it that way. You grammarians, you know, third person singular. First person I, second person you, third person he. It's that. Notice the words, whoever, right? The man, a man rather, he. It's talking about one individual. Now, Starting in verse 30, which we're about to take a look at, Paul switches. He switches from the singular to the plural. He was talking about a man, he, but then he starts talking about plural, we, and y'all. I say that so you can understand the you, starting in verse 30, is plural. 
Now, this isn't just an accident. or It's, it's significant. It, this is an indication now that starting in verse 30, he had, is going to address the congregation as a whole. In other words, the things he is about to say in verses 30 through 34 apply to the entire assembly. This is important, rather than to specific individuals. Because it's we and you all. Verse 30. For this reason, well, what reason? Not discerning the assembly as the one body of Christ. For this reason, many among you, plural, are weak and sick and a number sleep. For this reason, not discerning the assembly as the one body of Christ, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Verse 31 We've already taken a look at. If we discerned ourselves rightly as the body of Christ, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. At this time when Paul's writing and he's heard about all of the divisions and the abuses of the Lord's Supper, well, it turns out at the same time, many of the saints there were weak. They were sick. Some of them, a few of them, had recently died. Now, this describes the condition, not of any individual, but of the congregation as a whole. Looking at the congregation as a whole, some are weak, others are sick, and some have died recently. He's talking about the condition of the congregation as a whole. What does that mean? Well, therefore, they're all under judgment. They're all under judgment. And this wouldn't have happened if the assembly had discerned their unity behaved appropriately, not divided, not taking their own meals that they brought, but sharing at the Lord's Supper. It's really really important to understand this, that when when we're gathered together to bring into remembrance the Lord and to proclaim his death, okay, we should not be behaving the way they were behaving, okay? It's the condition of the congregation as a whole. If they had discerned their unity as the body of Christ, been behaved accordingly, they wouldn't have been judged. They wouldn't be judged. Now, know what could be happening right now, okay? Don't be freaking out right now. A lot of people freak out at this point, right? Weak, sick, died, right? We don't want that. Well, and by the way, if you're not careful, some people say every ache and pain must be punishment from the Lord. You know, for our sins. Or I'm under attack by the devil because I have a headache, you know. And not at all what this is talking about. Let's remember, let's get real. The Corinthian assembly, the group, was making a travesty of the Lord's Supper. Have we done that lately? I don't think so. I'll tell you as a, as a, as a, as a communicator. I don't think so. I don't think we've been making a travesty of the Lord's Supper. And not only, they didn't just do it once. They did it over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, the Father was looking at this assembly and seeing that they're supposed to be acting as the body of Christ, bringing to remembrance the death of His Son, and they're doing the opposite. They're making a travesty of it. They did it over and over and over again. At some point, the Father's going to say, this has to stop. I've got to get their attention. The group, the assembly, the congregation. Now, Paul also was an apostle. You know, it kind of looks like, well... Paul saying, you know what, when you see somebody sick or weak, guaranteed they're under the discipline of the Lord. Some people teach that. You know, the, the prosperity gospel people teach that. 
You have to remember something. Not only was the whole assembly making a travesty of the Lord's Supper again and again, but Paul was an apostle. In other words, he was given insight. As he was writing, he was given insight into what the Father was doing. He was, as an apostle. We're not. I'm not. You're not. We have no right to evaluate anybody in terms of their health or in terms of somebody who died recently. We have no right to do that. This was specific to that group at that time because Paul was their apostle writing about something that would be preserved. And therefore, he had this special insight. He understood into what the Father's doing that served as their discipline. And again, this does not mean this is how the Lord always acts. It doesn't mean that anybody today has an ability to pass judgment on someone based on their illness. Throw that away. Again, the church at Corinth was way out of bounds, way out of bounds, out of control, totally insulting the body and blood of the Lord, totally. Well, in that situation, the Lord had to take drastic measures in order to get their attention, in order to get their attention, not to punish them. A lot of people think this is just punishment. No, it's to get their attention. It's to get them to wake up and say, whoa, the Lord's sending a message here for the group. In other words, it's not one person. It's like it's happening all around us. Why? You know, he's getting their attention. Verse 31. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 32. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. If we discerned ourselves as the one body of Christ, we would not be judged. We, and emphasize that, we would not be judged. doesn't say that individual. It says we. We're all in together on this. He's talking about the entire congregation. It's, the ju- it's not the judgment and discipline of individuals. That's what a lot of people want to turn this into. It's not that. It's the judgment and discipline of the group. All for one and one for all. One member suffers, we all suffer. If, if one member is rejoicing, we all rejoice. All for one and one for all, which was the absolute message that the Lord is trying to teach them and at times will try to teach us too. It's the judgment of the group as one assembly. It's very similar that he also addressed the whole congregation when he was talking about their behavior. He was saying, all of you are shaming the poor. All of you are disregarding the church. So, but even if it's one faction, it doesn't matter. You see, isn't this true that the actions of a few can bring down the whole family? Have you not experienced that in your life? The actions of a few can bring down the whole family. In other words, here, divisive behavior has placed the whole community under judgment. It's sort of like, you know how it is, like some teachers, if one kid acted up during class, the teacher keeps the whole class after. It was called staying after. It's kind of along that idea, except that the, the teaching, the principle is that we ought to be united. Verse 32, when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Some people want to say, well, this is teaching you can lose your salvation. Nothing of the sort. Remember, in God's plan, There's two roads that humans can take, right? Believe and don't believe. Okay? Those are roads going in the opposite direction. Unbelievers are headed for condemnation. Believers aren't. There's no question here about whether believers will be condemned under the according like the world. We won't. We'll never be condemned. But instead, 
as God's children, we will be disciplined from time to time. That's really what this is saying. We're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned according to the world. He's saying, look, if we were not disciplined, that would be an indication, like it says in Hebrews 12, then that we're not really children. And if we weren't really children, we would be headed towards condemnation. But we're not. Now, one more Greek word, and that is disciplined. The Greek word is paiduo. Okay? It refers to the training of a child. That's what this word means. Training a child. When it says we are disciplined by the Lord, it's talking about training. Now, don't get me wrong. Training can be harsh. Right? If you're training a child, okay, not to hit their sister, for example. They've got to be trained. The old flesh would love to do that over and over again. They have to be trained not to. So the first time they do it, you may warn them. The second time you do it, they do it, you may take away something. But the third time they do it, they should get a spanking on their butt. Watch, somebody's going to take this tape and take me to court on that one. I don't care, though. That's fact. So the point is that sometimes training does involve inflicting a little pain. Or a lot. Depending on the circumstances. But make no mistake, the discipline was not punishment. It was a training tool, a teaching tool to make sure the child learned. Look at, uh, please turn to Titus 2.12. Titus 2.12. Because this same word, by duo, appears in Titus 2.12. Actually, start in verse 11. Okay, verse 11. To get the context. Verse 11. We're going to see what about the Father is in view here. Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared. What? The grace of God. The punishment of God? The law of God? What? The grace of God. He disciplines us in grace. Has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Notice verse 12. Instructing us. That's the same Greek word. Paiduo. Teaching us. Training us. To do what? Deny ungodliness. Same thing he's trying to train the Corinthians about. Deny your ungodliness. Get rid of your worldly desires. Instead, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's the goal. Now, often people do the opposite. Christians, they stay, they stay in worldly desires. They don't live sensibly. They're not treating one another in a righteous, godly way. So God eventually has to take in His grace steps to get them back on track. And so this word sometimes refers to chastisement, correction, or even inflicting pain. But for believers in Christ, this discipline, this paiduo, comes from the Father's grace and love for His sons and daughters. This is not punishment. Say that with me. This is not punishment. No. God, when He disciplines us, He is not punishing us. Well, why do I know that? Well, we don't have time to go there because I'm trying to wrap up. But in 1 John 4.18 says this. There is no fear in love. Once we recognize that we're being disciplined out of the love and grace of God, 
There's no fear anymore. Well, what's, what is fear all about? Well, perfect love, mature love from God, casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. Fear sees what God does as punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. In other words, we should never fear the discipline of the Lord. We should never fear it. It's only going to be there when we need it, and it's for our training, and it's for us to stop going the wrong way and start going the right way, which is what God does in his love and in his grace. Fear shows we're not mature yet when it comes to God's love for us, because God causes all things, including discipline, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Okay, finally, verses 33 to 34. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11, 33 to 34. We're going to wrap this up pretty quickly. 1 Corinthians 11, 33 to 34. Okay. So then, wrapping it up, what's the takeaway? It's very interesting. What's the takeaway? My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Really, again, the English really falls short here. It's not just a time thing. Okay, uh, he's going to be here in five minutes. You know, we can start the meal then. It's not at all what this is really talking about. We'll see that in a second. If one is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. That was causing the way in which they were eating selfishly, greedily. That was why they were under judgment. It was nothing esoteric. Remaining matters I will arrange when I come. You see, we've been on verses 17 to 34 for the last two weeks and today, and that whole section has been about one thing. It's been about the whole group coming together to eat. They did it the wrong way. They were disciplined for it. Now they're instructed to do it the right way. What's the right way? Real simple. The right way is to welcome everybody with gracious hospitality. That's what he's been getting at. You're all one. Welcome each other. Gracious to everybody. Welcome everybody. Because he's really reminding them that it's always been the case and always will be the case that you will all either stand or fall together. Together. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for all your good gifts, including your discipline in our lives, for training, getting us back on the right path. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have the opportunity at the Lord's Supper to bring him into remembrance in his death. And also, Father, we proclaim the good news of Christ's death. Thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. Father, we also want to thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of how we're saved by grace through faith. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, next Bible study on Thursday, 7 o'clock at night, looking at the fact that once we believe in Christ, we're in the Father's hands forever. Eternal security. We've been studying that in a very comprehensive way. And so please come. We're going to start looking at um, people that would say we could and why that's wrong, and why passages they point to don't really say that. Okay, I want to get into our giving policy again today. And um, tell you about, well, you'll see. Um, Just remember that our giving policy is that freely we have received, freely we give. 
Lord loves a gracious giver. So we operate on voluntary donations. We don't solicit funds. We don't believe in tithing. Okay? We believe in gratitude in one's heart for what the Lord has done and gratitude leading to wanting to contribute for that word to be doing what it needs to be doing in other people's lives. That ought to be the motivation. It's a privilege when you give in that way. So we don't charge a price for anything. If you've got, there's books there, you can take them. We don't charge for any of it. Anybody who wants the word of God can receive it free of charge. Because it's like the same principle in Corinth. There could be people coming that don't have any money. Or we just say, well, you can't get the best that we have because you don't have the money. Wrong. That's wrong. No, those of us who have been blessed financially are the ones that should freely, graciously provide the resources. God loves a gracious, cheerful giver. That's our policy. Well, it's funny because I, I talked about it last week. And then, see, I was not thinking about you because then I'm like, that's it, right? Well, the guys were saying, you know, you never told them how. You never told them how they can do it. They're there, their hearts are full, they want to give. And there's like, well, they didn't tell me how to do it. So I'm going to just do that briefly today. Three ways, okay? In the back, it doesn't look like that. In the back, there's like a stand in a box. That's one way, okay? Second way is this thing right here, the U.S. mail. All right, I'm going to give you our address in a second. Third way, website. So there's three ways. If the Lord has blessed you and you want to support what we're doing here, the box, the mail, and the website. Three ways, okay? This is what it looks like on the website. I finally learned how to do PayPal, by the way. It only took me like 10 years, but anyway. Um, so that's the website. And then finally, I mentioned that's the address. Well, I probably know it, but in case you don't, it's uh, 4213 North Federal Highway, Pompano Beach, Florida, 33060. See that? Thank you. 33064. And with that, we've reached the end. All right. Give us your prayer requests. We, we pray on Thursdays. Okay. Two ways. I mean, I suppose you could mail it to us, but that doesn't usually work because there's too much of a delay. We have a box in the, in the foyer here. Or again, you can go on our website and, and enter your prayer request there. Please do that. We want to pray for what you want us to pray for. But we can't do that if we don't know what you want us to pray for. So please let us know. Okay. Luncheon, one more reminder. If you plan on bringing food next week, and hopefully you plan on sharing it, hopefully you're not going to bring the filet mignon and stand in a corner and invite your best friends over. Hopefully it's going to be for everybody. It always is. I'm just teasing. But if you're planning on bringing something, please let Jack Bovenet in the back there, the only person standing besides me right now, let him know what you're bringing so we can plan accordingly. All right. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what this is really all about. It's, it's, it's the roots of our preaching. It's what we've seen the Lord's Supper is all about. Again, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If nothing changed, we would be bound for, for the final death, the lake of fire. That's just the way it is. And by the way, we can't change that. We can't fix our sinfulness. We can't do anything that would make up for the fact. And we certainly can't do anything about going forward and not sinning. We're stuck. 
Except, God doesn't want us stuck. He loves us so much that He had His Son, God the Son and the Trinity, come here, take on human flesh, and die for us. We could never do it. We can never make ourselves righteous, so He was our substitute. He dealt with all of our sins at the cross. He rose from the dead, showing that whoever believes in Him rises to new life and has been justified by the Father. Remember we saw that good seal? Talking about that today, being approved. Well, the moment we believe in Christ, God the Father stamps us as approved, declares us perfectly righteous in His eyes, and it's all by believing. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, nothing we do, lest anyone should boast. It is an amazing message. It's a message that many of you have heard and believed. Well, now it's a message that we get the opportunity to tell other people about. Proclaim it. Please do that whenever you can. All right. One more reminder. If you have any questions today, I'll be out here in the front with my Bible, and you can ask me anything about the Word of God. Just don't ask me about football, because you'd, be, you'd probably be disappointed with the answer. Hint, I come from New England. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for all the blessings that we've shared together today, Father. We ask that you would open our eyes of our heart to the glory of, of who you are and the richness of the calling and the inheritance and the greatness of your power. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed to enjoy this great day.